that we'll be <coughs> carrying out this week is derived from a major sermon of the Buddha. called the Anapanasati Sutta, a teaching on the full awareness of breathing. <coughs> Actually, I don't, I don't mean this, but I, a humorous... Uh, Memory comes up with all the coughing, including my own. Some years, it's okay, everyone. Okay, that's. <laughs> Some years ago, Krishnamurti was giving a, a talk in Carnegie Hall, New York. I happened to be at it. And there was <clears throat> changing and shuffling and sneezing, and finally he said, For God's sakes, would everyone just, would everyone just cough and sneeze in unison and get it over with? So if you want to, go ahead. Let's see if it works. No one did. They just got very embarrassed. This sutra uses the breath to not only calm the mind, to enable it to be steady, peaceful, concentrated, uh, but the breath is used all the way to final liberation. It's used as a medium, a means, a core practice that is involved with every aspect of vipassana meditation as well, insight work. Uh, For those of you who've been practicing a while and have Uh, read a bit and I know there are many newcomers tonight Um, I'm not going to get overly technical but some of you may want to read a little bit on it some of you already know what it is this full awareness of breathing is used to develop the four satipatthanas the four foundations of mindfulness which is the core of Vipassana meditation without that sutra there's no practice And in a nutshell, it has to do with developing mindfulness on the body, on feelings, on mind states, and on the lawfulness that governs the whole mind-body process. To come to know that, in short, self-knowledge, self-understanding. And Anapanasati is just a, a version of that teaching. It's using the breath to enable us to accomplish the same thing. To go deeply into the body, to see the nature of the body. What does it mean to have a body? To go deeply into the nature of feelings. To go deeply into the nature of the mind itself. And then to begin to see the lawfulness, for example, that no matter what it is that we're looking at, it arises and passes away. It's impermanent. And it lacks selfhood. 
an intrinsic nature that is enduring. It lacks that. So we're using the breath, and throughout the week we'll be uh, tapping that very, very rich sutra. All of the teachings of the Buddha really are in it. It finishes up in a kind of crescendo where it talks about if we follow this sutra, there are many different ways to use the breathing, 16 contemplations of the breath, which have to do with the body feelings and mind and and the lawfulness. If we do this, what happens is the, the seven energies of awakening, the seven foundations of enlightenment are aroused, are developed, are perfected. It kind of automatically arises from that. These are very uh, interesting seven energies or qualities of mind that can help us very much on the way. I personally have used them for years to try to understand my own practice, my own life. And in teaching, in interviews, one of the things that I use as a guide, and it's been, I think, fairly helpful, is when talking to somebody to get a sense of which of these qualities needs development, which these qualities uh, are already strong, and then how to integrate them. So what I'd like to do during this retreat is to go through these uh, seven energies, seven qualities of, of an enlightened mind, and particularly bring out the significance of these uh, energies in the light of a practice of conscious breathing. So we'll be looking at it from that angle. The factors have to do with mindfulness, first and foremost, no surprise. There's the first um, quality that an enlightened mind has is the perfection of mindfulness. Now, all of these qualities are present in us right now. Everyone in this room has all seven qualities. But the degree of depth that's needed uh, is what the practice is about. The practice is dramatically deepening and finally perfecting uh, these qualities. And you'll see there, in a sense, um, a description of a happy human being. Of a, of a mind that can function fully in life. So step number one is mindfulness. Without mindfulness, the other six never come into life because everything pours out of the mindfulness, this capacity to pay attention. An enlightened mind also has the ability to investigate. It can explore probe, it can exercise a certain discernment to gather to itself the nature of something, insight. It's another aspect. The, uh, another quality uh, of these factors of enlightenment uh, that is essential, not only must there be mindfulness, Uh, and the capacity to investigate, but energy and effort. Uh, Nothing really worthwhile in this life happens without a certain amount of of energy and effort. And the energy has to be 
going in the right direction. Uh, not only must there be uh, effort and energy, but there's a certain amount of rapture that's very helpful if the mind can draw upon itself for nourishment, a certain uh, bliss and rapture, as well as peace, a deep calmness and peace. Can we have a mind that has these qualities and in addition, can it be a concentrated mind, a mind that is able to fix its attention on something and to stay with that thing as long as is wished for? And can this mind be equanimous, even, even-minded in the face of the many oscillations that make up our life? Things go our way, they don't go our way. Now, what I'd like to do tonight is to begin with the first one, mindfulness, and then, uh, as time permits, throughout the week, uh, we'll bring the others in and uh, show, in some cases, how they relate to each other. Before going into that, the, not only does mindfulness, in a sense, give rise to the other, these other factors of enlightenment, these other energies or qualities of a mind that's awake, but mindfulness is also needed to regulate them. Some of these, the qualities that I mentioned, are arousing qualities. And the others are more stabilizing or calming. Mindfulness is needed to keep them in balance. For example, if all the calming uh, factors of the mind are highly developed, but the arousing ones are not, uh, that won't go anywhere. There'll be a strong attachment to uh, blissful states of meditation, which eventually, of course, end. Then again, if the arousing faculties are developed at the expense of the calming faculties, there'll be, finally, there'll be agitation and uneasiness. And so mindfulness, not only do these factors develop from mindfulness, but mindfulness looks after them. And in the paying attention and noticing uh, the state of these factors, the factors themselves become evened out and work in a coordinated, unified way. I'll give you an example. Actually, there's a famous example uh, of when the general point is that if any of these factors are developed uh, in a kind of addictive way at the expense of the other factors, uh, then the practice is thrown off. And uh, the misuse of concentration, when concentration can get very, very strong, if we become addicted to concentration at the expense of the other factors, then it can be a very dangerous dead end. One very famous uh, teaching from ancient China there was a, an old woman and her daughter. Uh, the woman sponsored a monk. What that meant was that she built a hut for him, a meditating monk, built a hut for him, and brought him food every day. 
and in general looked after his needs because he was a sincere practitioner. And for three years he was practicing all the time. One day she wasn't sure. She wanted to find out just what is going on in there. What, what is he doing? Who is this monk that I've been supporting and built this house for? So she told her attractive daughter to go in and to bring the food this particular day. And when she delivered the food, to give him a big embrace and then to walk out. So she brought the food and embraced the monk. The monk didn't move, remained in meditation. And then she walked out. And the mother said, well, what happened when you hugged him? She said, nothing. She said, nothing. And she got very angry. She went charging into the hut and she said, what happened when my daughter embraced you yesterday? He said, well, it was like a dry piece of wood leaning against a very cold stone. So immediately, this old lady, who must have been a master in disguise, took her broom and whacked him and drove him out and burned his hut down. Why? Sounds like he's a good monk. The significance of it is an attachment to the non-moving mind. And it was in deep states of concentration. The mind becomes imperturbable. What is called a non-moving mind. And it's easily mistaken for enlightenment. And there are people who get caught there. I met a Westerner once who got very caught there. And sometimes it's very helpful to have people who know about it or have been there so that they can see it and help you because the amount of self-satisfaction can be very strong and conviction that you've actually accomplished something. Inevitably, of course, the world shows you that you haven't. However, that would be the overdevelopment of one, fact, one faculty and certainly one that would not have, that would have been undeveloped would be investigation. If you were very, very concentrated, and some people can get very concentrated, but don't like to investigate, that would be a limit. And, of course, there are people who love to investigate. Many psychotherapists like that, right? And have a harder time getting concentrated. So it's clear that each person brings a different configuration of these qualities uh, to the practice. Uh, another way of looking at all seven of them is, seven of them is, is uh, I see it and feel it as a, a kind of second growing up, a second chance to grow up and to leave behind a lot of uh, certain kinds of childish ways of getting through life, use of fantasies excessively and images and uh, avoidances and so forth. Because if you heard those seven qualities, you understand that it's a very a mind that's quite awake with lots of energy that's uh, looking into itself. Okay, we'll start with mindfulness, sati. The main characteristic of sati, or mindfulness, is non-superficiality. Non-superficiality. Could say thorough. The, the positive, more positive way of phrasing it. 
the job of mindfulness, one of the jobs of mindfulness, is to meet an object, to envelop it, to enter into it, to penetrate it, and to cover it fully, to not miss anything. For example, even with a breath, if you're mindful of an in-breath or an out-breath, perhaps you've noticed sometimes the mindfulness is with the beginnings of the breath and then suddenly there's a split second of where you're away and then you come back. But you've missed part of the breath and sometimes it's, there's a pattern to it. Some people tend to not fully be with the whole in-breath or the whole out-breath. As the mind gets quieter, you'll see these ways in which the mindfulness is not thorough. So, uh, that's not a small thing. Because as we go through life, uh, we often gloss over things. The mindfulness that we direct is superficial. The attention that we direct is superficial. We judge people immediately by what they wear and how they look and make all kinds of decisions based on uh, not uh, understanding that it has much depth or thoroughness. So the job, one, the main job of mindfulness is uh, to go through that, is to be able to look carefully at something and to see it in all its detail. You know, it's just like getting to know a person. At first, you have a, a gloss of who the person is, maybe formed because of certain images. But as you get to know the person, you get to know more details. And sometimes the difference between you th- who you thought they were when you first met and who they turn out to be is like Grand Canyon. The disparity is. So it's, it applies to everything. Just look at nature. Take a look at a leaf. Just look at it for a second or two. Then look at it carefully in an extended way. By the way, I would suggest you stay in touch with your breathing and see if it helps you do listening. Right? As, as I'm speaking, see if staying in touch with the breathing while you're listening is helpful in terms of listening. Mindfulness also has as a a purpose uh, keeping the object in view, not forgetting about what you're attending to. Uh, Finally, it has to do with coming face-to-face with the object. And in the process of coming face-to-face with the object, seeing it in its, seeing its true nature as the capacity to attend becomes more developed, more refined. And these factors of enlightenment, which we all have right now, the, what comes out of the practice is they all become much more refined, much more vivid. They're f- fully experienced at a moment of path consciousness, what is called path consciousness, or a particular transforming moment of consciousness, when what is seen, you see a lot. You see things very, very deeply. It's not possible to see them in the same way with the ordinary mind, although we see them. We already know, for example, the Four Noble Truths. And a large part of mindfulness' job is really seeing that, that there is suffering. When there is, do we know it? that as we begin to look into suffering, we see its cause. We could see it, the letting go of it as we practice. 
um, let's talk about mindfulness a bit from a somewhat different direction. I hope just uh, serving to make more concrete what was just said. Typically, when we're, we all, even before you ever heard of Vipassana, we've all been mindful. Uh, But as it's used here, mindfulness has to do with, usually, that first uh, brief period when you meet an object and you see it in a very fresh way and it's free of any labels or memory or history. You just, there's a direct perception. But all too often what happens is immediately uh, the mind goes to work and then tells you what it is based on our history, our conditioning, and uh, once we label it as this, that, or the other, then a whole bunch of associations come along, and that what we're seeing, in a sense, is our own mind, mixed in with with the object, whether the object is the breath, or a person, or fear, or whatever it is. And so, uh, you could say that the, the one main purpose of our practice is to enable that brief moment when the looking is so pure, to be more enduring so that the life of that pure perception before thought comes in and tells you what it is, colors it so dramatically, for that to become more and more enduring so that there are at least periods in our life when we can look with a certain continuity and freshness at something as if for the first time, even if we, in quotes, have experienced it a thousand times. Okay, what else can we say about this mindfulness? By the way, it's not easy to talk about it, uh, yet we have to. But it is pretty easy to experience it when it's happening. And probably, I hope, all of you by now, including the new people, have, I hope you have had at least a, some time during this retreat when you felt something like what has been said and what will now be said. One key aspect of mindfulness is that it's mirror-like. Mindfulness reflects what's happening. And just like a good mirror, it just shows you what's there. It's not for or against anything. If you put something beautiful in front of the mirror, it shows beauty. If you put something ugly, it shows ugly. If you put a book in front of the mirror, it shows book. If you put a uh, plate in front of the mirror, it shows plate. So that the mirror has no investment Its job is simply to reflect what is there without adding anything to it, without subtracting anything from it. It's unbiased. That's the quality of mind that little by little we're developing, the capacity to do that, to have a mind that's mirror-like. The the mindfulness aspect is mirror-like. Slightly different ways of saying the same thing is that it's non-conceptual. It's before concepts. It's the noticing of reality, the being in touch, being in direct, intimate contact with reality that precedes our ideas about reality. I told some of you, for example, um, this morning in sitting, uh, suddenly there was an old, it was actually uh, an old commercial, use Ajax, boom, boom, the foaming cleanser. Now, there may be a lot of people who have never heard of it. But that's all it played when I was growing up, over and over and over. 
and suddenly I heard it directly. And then the mind came in on it and started to say what I just said. Oh, that's the old uh, commercial from when you were a teenager. And that, uh, that was no, then it was memory. I then fell into memory. But then mindfulness woke up again and it saw the mind doing remembering. Then it was mindfulness again. So you can be mindful of thought. In fact, if you can't be mindful of thought, you can't, you're not going to be able to gradually purify the mind so that it can have this uh, uh, Buddhist love, clear mind. That's our treasure, to have a clear mind heart. That's why we don't drink or shoot up, do drugs. Just we love clarity. Okay. Um, not only is it preconceptual, but the only time it can happen is now. Mindfulness can't happen any other time. It's too late. It just passed. It can be mindful of the past, but when you look closely, you'll see what that is. is You're being mindful of a memory, but the memory is happening in the present. It, the event is over. What you're aware of is the memory of it, which is happening now. And mindfulness can be mindful of the future. You project into the future. We all had to do that to arrange the schedule and so forth. It isn't really the future. It's an, imagine, it's an imagining. And even that is happening right now. So mindfulness can, is only now. But there is only now. So it works out kind of nicely. What it's asking us to do is to be fully alive. There's no goal but the seeing in mindfulness. We're not seeing in order to get this, that, or the other. Once you get into that, probably you've experienced this once, there are gaining ideas, ambitions, striving to go deep or whatever it is that we want, even wonderful spiritual goals. To some degree, a corner of the mind is taken up with being ahead of ourselves. And so the energy is not fully there. We're divided in a subtle way sometimes. So the purpose of mindfulness is mindfulness. The purpose of the mirror is to reflect. Another aspect of mindfulness, and this one sometimes is confusing for people, Uh, sometimes there's the view that mindfulness is something like viewing life from uh, top of a mountain with binoculars. You're removed, you're detached from the event, kind of pulled back from it, and you have binoculars or whatever to look at it. Uh, Maybe that's some ways in which people practice meditation. I wouldn't deny that. But the way in which we mean mindfulness is that it's a kind of participant observation. You become an observing participant. That is, you fully enter into and feel that which you're mindful of. So it's confusing that people say, well, that doesn't sound, that sounds like the way everyone is. You know, we're feeling our pain or feeling lonely. Uh, This is a little different. Although we fully enter into that which we're mindful of, 
there's a wakeful quality that needs to be maintained in the midst of whatever it is that we're feeling, whatever the experience is. So it's quite dynamic and alive. Now, the mirror image breaks down here because that implies a kind of coldness. It's not cold at all. It's uh, as alive as you are alive because what mindfulness is about is intimately experiencing our life. It's all it is from moment to moment. Okay, I hope this, uh, you know, just a few hints at what is this quality that we're developing. In the uh, Buddhist commentaries, they list different uh, ways to strengthen the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. Sambhojanga, sati. The most important is that mindfulness begets mindfulness. A moment of mindfulness causes more mindfulness. So that when, if you want mindfulness to grow, the best way for that to happen is be mindful right in this moment. Being mindful in this moment, you are furthering the development of mindfulness. It's like a momentum. It's like planting seeds. In, the, in Buddhist psychology, there's a, uh, a storehouse consciousness. consciousness. And everything that we do, is a, not only is it done, but it also is a seed which will bear fruit in the future. So when we're mindful, we're planting a lot more mindfulness seeds, which will uh, see to it that in our future there is more mindfulness. And right in the immediate present, you've probably experienced it. When you're mindful, that leads to the next moment of mindfulness and the next moment of mindfulness. So one of the best ways to help this process develop is to do it. That's the best way. Then they list other uh, ways to help yourself, to strengthen this practice of sati. Don't hang out with people who are unmindful. That would be a hard one, wouldn't it? And the flip side of that, spend a lot of time with people who are mindful. Okay, that's what we're doing here. We don't let anyone stay here if they're not going to be mindful. We have you all monitored. We know what's going on. Some of you are going to be asked to leave soon. There are only mindful people permitted to stay here. It's an environment of totally mindful people. But it's, in a sense, not a joke. Because what we're attempting to do is, by all of us coming together and uh, focusing so much attention on this one simple thing, attention, we're all helping one another. Because, in effect, we are following what the ancient uh, commentary is saying. We're spending time with people who are trying to be mindful. And that helps us be mindful, as we help them be mindful. Uh, It's also suggested that you should incline the mind towards mindfulness. In other words, if you want a quality to develop, you should incline the mind towards it. And what that means is make mindfulness a conscious priority in your life. Now, if you're very new to the practice, there's no reason why you would have done that or would even make sense because you don't fully know what it is. 
But more and more, as one realizes what a treasure this simple capacity that each human being has to pay attention. In other words, we have this, humans can be conscious of, we can be conscious of our life as we live out our life. We're able to do that. It's It's wonderful. Not only do we live, but we're able to be conscious of that living as we live it out. But we have totally underestimated what that is. That capacity is just lost. No one, we didn't get it in our education. I didn't. And it's the core of, of Vipassana, Zen, uh, Tibetan, all of it works. Without this quality, the entire Buddhist edifice just collapses. There's nothing there but just cardboard. It's just a lot of beautiful philosophical terms. So, as practice unfolds, if you begin to see that there's a treasure in this capacity to pay attention, which you already have, but which has been lost, it's so unassuming that we've kind of bypassed it, then it is very helpful if you consciously set it as a priority that I'd like to introduce more consciousness into my life. In short, I would like to be more mindful from moment to moment. And the final suggestion that uh, this ancient commentary gives is to begin to use mindfulness in a more comprehensive way. So it's not just the sitting, which we tend to think of meditation as, or even the formal walking, but to use it throughout the day for mindfulness to accompany us in our life as we bend, stretch, walk, brush our teeth, go to bed, make our bed, unmake our bed, uh, everything we do, listen, are you with your breathing now? If not, please come back. See if it helps. And I like to. Um, I hope this is. Uh, it's a difficult group to try to cast a uh, talk for because half of you are very new to the practice, and the other half have been around for quite a while. So to try and find uh, find a basis. But what I would like to go into now is this part a bit. Uh, essentially the importance of mindfulness in daily life. And some of you, many of you, will be leaving tomorrow. So you will go back to what is called daily life, wherever you've come from. But you know, there's only daily life. Those of us who are remaining here, what else do we have? We just have daily life too. And we do a lot of the same things. We have to sleep and go to the bathroom and eat and all the rest. We don't talk as much. So what I'm saying, I hope, will be equally useful for those of us who are remaining here. Those of you who are going to be here for the week, you'll be hearing more of this till it's coming out of your ears. And those who are leaving, uh, perhaps you can see that uh, this provides you with a wonderful opportunity to develop the practice throughout your life. It's especially important for us as lay people uh, in that we may not have that much time during a year to do intensive formal practice like here. It's not fatal. It would be nice if we could, but it's not fatal. But only if we're able to use basically most of our life, which is not sitting in a formal way, in some way that is also has some spiritual nourishment for us. Let me read to you from a Burmese 
Vipassana master named Webu Sayadaw. What I'm beginning to do right now is link the breath with what we're talking about. Mindfulness is the core of Buddhist meditation practice. And Anapanasati uses the breath to help develop that mindfulness. And so we'll be using conscious breathing a lot throughout this week. Okay, I'm, I, I'm going to read you a fair amount of it, but I'm going to skip a lot of it. Uh, this Webu Saidor would do a lot of teaching through just very homely, simple, everyday examples. And he asked people about what they do if their roof is leaking. And he drew them out about how they repair it and what materials they use. And once they had shown that they understand the leaking roof and that it's not wise to have a leaking roof and that there is a way of repairing it and fixing it, he then draws the analogy to the mind. And the students, and by the way, these students, I don't know if they really spoke this way, but they're... It's, a, it's wonderful to listen to it because they're so polite and they always make the teacher look good. You know, <laughs> they say everything that you just want a person to say to make the practice seem wonderful. You're a great teacher, clear, and so forth. Uh, as we all know, we're not exactly like that. We have our own theories. We have, we've studied seven or eight different kinds of Buddhism. How does this compare with that? And who does he think he is? Tell me he's not a woman. He's no good. You know, whatever it is. These people are just from, from a kind of a, uh, prehistoric times or something. <laughs> They're just so uh, wonderful the way they do their job and make the teacher come out. Anyway, okay. he's telling them about how this leaky roof thing is also a problem of the mind and do they see that? And they do. But then one says, sir, they even are, refer to him as sir all the time, sir. <laughs> So we have all the roofing materials, but the roof is still leaking. We would like to know the technique of building a good roof. Sayadaw says, don't build a thin, shaky roof. Build a thick, strong roof. How are we to build a strong roof, sir? While we are sitting here like this, we still have to endure being drenched by the rain. The Sayadaw. The wise people of old practice the teachings without allowing their efforts to diminish in any of the four postures. Sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. And they kept up such a perfect continuity of awareness that there never was any gap. You too have to practice in this way. The disciples of the Buddha established awareness of the breath and then did not allow their minds to shift to another object. Now, can the rains of greed, aversion, delusion, still affect those who are steadfast? Answer, no, sir, they can't. Sayadaw, if you establish the same quality of awareness, whether sitting, standing, or walking, will the rain still be able to penetrate uh, your protecting roof? Sir, please teach us the technique which will give us shelter. Sayadaw, Sayadaw is a name for teacher in the Burmese tradition. Tell me, and here is the part that's relevant for us, which, uh, which is why I'm bringing this in here. The Sayadaw says, Tell me, all of you are breathing, aren't you? Oh, yes, sir. All are breathing. Sayadaw, when do you first start breathing? Why, when we are born, of course, sir. Are you breathing when you are sitting? Yes, sir. 
Are you breathing while you're standing, walking and working? Of course, sir. When you are very busy and have a lot to do, do you stop breathing, saying, sorry, there's no time to breathe now, too much work? No, sir, we don't. Are you breathing while asleep? Yes, sir, we are. Then, do you still have to search for this breath? No, sir, it's there all the time. Please remember that one. That's the key. No, sir, it's there all the time. Then the Sayadaw. There is no one, big or small, who doesn't know how to breathe. Now, where does this breath touch when you breathe out? Somewhere below the nose and above the upper lip, sir. And when you breathe in, at the same spot, sir. He's using the nose for breath, but if you uh, prefer some other spot, then it would be the same. If you pay attention to this small spot and the touch of air as you breathe in and out, can't you be aware of it? It is possible, sir. When you are thus aware, is there still wanting, aversion, ignorance, worry, and anxiety? No, sir. Saido, you see there? You can come out of suffering immediately. If you follow, <laughs> if you follow the teachings of the Buddha, you instantly become happy. If you practice and revere the Dhamma, you remove the suffering of the present moment and also the suffering of the future. What we're attempting to do, and what I would encourage you to do on this retreat, and for those of you who will be leaving tomorrow, take advantage of the fact that we're all breathing. The breath is used in a couple of ways, and it's important not to get confused between those, those ways. One, the breath is an exclusive object of attention. That's what we're doing now in the sitting practice. We go to the breath, and every time the mind wanders, we come back over and over and over again. Now, if you continue to do that, what happens is the mind becomes absorbed in the object, in this case, breathing. And you leave everything else behind, and you enter into great peace and joy, etc. It's not a trance. You're quite wakeful, but you're wakeful of wakefulness. That's useful. We're going to, be, we're going to try to help... We're all attempting to develop that and to make that strong. But if that practice alone is followed, you become like the monk who got kicked out of his hut. You become attached to just the concentrated aspect of mind. Now, although the, the breath has a very important part to play in developing that, we also use the breath in a somewhat different way. We use the breath to help nourish mindfulness as we pay attention to the world that is other than breath. And we'll be, we've already, in some of the instructions, given hints at that. For example, if there's a lot of physical pain uh, and it's becoming a problem, then turn to the physical pain. So the primary object now is the physical pain. But don't lose contact with the breathing. So we're still using the breathing. The breathing is like a good friend. It holds your hand, it accompanies you, and it helps nourish the mindfulness uh, so that it has a much better chance of being able to stay with difficult states like physical pain or loneliness or fear so that uh, it's the same for listening. When I'm suggesting that you listen, I'm suggesting that you use the breathing to help you stay in the present moment. Once you get the knack of it, conscious breathing 
helps you helps eliminate unnecessary thinking. It helps you stay in the present moment. It helps eliminate or minimize forgetfulness when we just drift off. And also it gives you, uh, as it gets stronger, and it only gets stronger if you do it a lot, it gives you energy and a calmness which enables you to uh, perform functions in the world. So it's not limited to the meditation hall. And that's the, the main point I'm trying to make with this, uh, this anecdote, is that the conscious breathing can be used to help us in every aspect of life. Now, some activities lend themselves more easily to conscious breathing than others. And, it's some, and I don't become a fanatic, please. It's something that has to grow uh, little by little gradually. But try to remember to turn to your breath as much as you can. Examples. Some of you who've read the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's done a lot of work in this direction. You stop at a traffic light, a red light. Normally, or very often, we view that as an enemy. It's keeping us from getting to where we want to get to. Even though once we get there, we're not so happy to be there, and we start thinking about where we now where we want to get to. But instead of viewing the red light as an enemy or as an obstacle that's put a break on your speed, uh, now you see it as a mindfulness bell, just as the bell is used to... Uh, invite you to come back to yourself, to not get scattered and all spun out. Now the red light, you just get all teary-eyed when you come to a red light. You're so moved, deeply moved. That it's a great bodhisattva disguised as a red light. And you're there while you're watching, you're just breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, and you settle down a bit. Maybe you have to drive quickly. The car may have to go quickly, but it's not necessarily so that the person has to be, the mind has to be driving quickly. The mind can be calm in a fast-moving car. Or the telephone rings. Instead of picking it up immediately, pause, come to your breathing, so that when you do pick up the phone, you're more present. In fact, stay with the breath as you carry on your conversation. As we suggested here in the eating, to try to, in a sense, keep in touch with the breath. Sometimes it will feel like it's in the background. As the practice deepens, it will go through changes and it won't be the same every day. Sometimes it's more like a unified field. So what you're aware of is what you're aware of and the breath is very much a part of it and helps you stay awake in the midst of it. Um, I think we'll continue... uh, The next time I want to mention other ways in which it's used to help with like the precepts. Um, With relationship, um, really the applications are endless. Okay, the main thing that I would like you to take away from this, especially those of you who are leaving tomorrow, is that if you, little by little, start to cultivate this quality of turning, keeping the breath in mind, Turning to it, when you, as more and more remembering to do that. The breath is always there. It's not, a, it's not a question of the object. It's a matter of remembering to do that. Uh, begin to do that more and more and more and see what happens. See if that isn't a tremendous help. Particularly sometimes people who are new to the practice and, and really take to heart this notion of mindfulness are sometimes confused or at a loss as to what to be mindful of. Sort of like a 
maybe just a few seconds, what object should I be mindful of? What would be best to... Well, here you have a very simple, ongoing, natural object that's right there. Helping to cool you out, steady you out, keep you clear, keep you in the present moment. If you're washing pots tomorrow, see if you can... If the breath helps you do that. It may not. There may be certain activities where you find that it's actually a deterrent. But some of that you can't tell until you really do it enough so that it becomes vivid enough to be uh, capable of really providing a lot of help. Okay, can we have a moment's silence, please? Do a bit of walking meditation, please.